Hello, listeners. My name is Craig Zerpolo, and this is Why Science, a podcast about scientific research and its impact on policy and the community at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. This series is produced by COBE, the College Behavioral and Emotional Health Institute, with the assistance of WVCW Student Radio at VCU. For more information, visit kobe.vcu.edu and wvcw.org. The show is supported in part by the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Music for today's episode is provided by Night Idea. Download their new record, Breathing Cold, on Bandcamp at nightidea.bandcamp.com. Today's guest is Tom Bannard, a substance abuse counselor at VCU who splits his time as administrative director of Kobe and director of Rams in Recovery. So our guest today is uh, a little different than the other episodes. Uh, his name is Tom Bannard, and he's a co-worker of mine with Kobe. Uh, thank you for joining us, Tom. Thanks for having me, Craig. Since I know you better than a lot of the other guests since we work together, I know that you've had a non-traditional path coming into your job here at VCU. Can you kind of tell me about you know where you started and how you've ended up here? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. So um, I'm very, uh, I think, different from a lot of the folks that I work with, and I, I've really enjoyed being at VCU. Um, but I, I certainly took a, a different path to get here. So I spent uh, seven years working in homeless services at an organization called Caritas, uh, which is a large provider of shelter here in Richmond and recovery services and uh, had a wonderful experience there and uh, actually was uh, was a history in African-American studies undergrad. Um, and so I, I kind of took a, a pretty, you know, uh, varied path to, to get here. I I grew up in a family of educators and uh, and always wanted to teach. And um, during my time at the uh, University of Virginia, uh, I struggled with substances to a large extent. And so um, my senior year, I, I dropped out and, and had gotten into some trouble and kind of entered uh, a, a rehab and uh, got sober and started my, uh, my path to recovery at that point. And um, as a result of that, I just I took a very different path than I had originally intended. Um, education was always important to me, um, but I found that I had this kind of different uh, skill set that uh, might help out uh, some people that uh, I didn't originally think that I would end up working with. Going from doing history and African American studies to Caritas, how did you make that initial transition? I became, I, I went to, to JSARGE and I did a, a certificate program um, at JSARGE uh, for substance abuse counseling. And so I did a, a placement at the Healing Place, which is one of Caritas's programs. And so I, I just had a wonderful experience at the Healing Place and kind of did well enough that they offered me a job and I, uh, working as AmeriCorps. And so I did that for a couple of years and did well enough at that, that they invited me to, to stick around. And so I, I ran the transitional program at the healing place, uh, f- for a couple of years and, uh, and got to have this really wonderful, diverse experience uh, at that organization, which is, it's a wonderful organization. It's a really scrappy, hardworking organization that, that really makes things work for, for people, um, both as staff and the population that they serve. What does schooling for that entail? And sort of what is the the day-to-day responsibility of someone on the ground as a substance abuse counselor? So I I worked in probably not the typical substance abuse counseling role. Uh, My job was 
to uh, work with um, our whole transition community at the Healing Place. And the Healing Place is a long-term recovery program that's peer-based. And so the peers really drive the, the mood and the culture of the, uh, of the organization, of the living environment. And so my job really was to facilitate that community. So I had about 70 people on my caseload with uh, one assistant. And so I managed the apartments. I ran um, what's kind of a modified therapeutic community. And uh, so I was working with uh, a lot of people, both one-on-one and in a group context. And uh, helping with employment-related services and um, just helping with that transition back into society. Yeah. As a person in recovery yourself, what do you think that you bring to the table as a substance abuse counselor from that experience? That's been kind of something that, that's uh, been an interesting experience for me because um, I think early on in my career, I relied really, really heavily on kind of my lived experience, which I think is really important and really valuable uh, for, uh, for, for people to kind of be at a table sitting across with somebody that's, that's been through a lot of what they've been through. Um, but I also, it became really important to, to be a professional as well. And so kind of, it's, it's been an interesting job kind of marrying those two, uh, things that are not always in line. I think that overall, uh, the fact that I use some degree of self-disclosure about my recovery has, has always helped me uh, identify and relate with, with clients. Um, but I've also, also been careful to say, you know, just because I have some experience with recovery doesn't mean that I necessarily understand every experience that uh, the folks that I'm working with have. When did you first take an interest in science and research, and how has that impacted your path in your career and just your growth personally? So it's a, it's an interesting question because having listened to a few of your other podcasts, I think that I took a, a not quite the same path as as some of the other folks that you've had in here. Um, I took an interest in the science of of recovery and the science of addiction more as a result of feeling a responsibility towards our clients to say, you know, we were reaching and impacting a lot of people, but we couldn't, uh, there was a lot of people that we still were not reaching. And I've always been driven, um, my boss at the Healing Place, Al Jackson, used to say, you know, good is the enemy of best. And so we just had this attitude at Caritas that it was never... Um, it was never good enough, you know, that there was always a way to be better. And kind of growing up in that, that culture made you, okay, look, what are other folks doing better than we are? What are other treatment models doing uh, more effective than, than we are? And when you start asking those questions, then you have to start measuring things. You have to start uh, really getting down to analyzing your own impact. And so I kind of came into my interest in science just as a, as a desire to, we've got to impact more people in more deeply. And uh, there's a lot of really, really smart people that are looking for better ways to do this with people. And, um, you know, let's start looking for that stuff. 
And so that in that way, we kind of share a perspective because we're both very interested in in scientific conversations about these topics. But neither of us come from a traditional scientific background. You know, what do you think people like us have to offer to those conversations? Sure. So uh, that's been really interesting and really fun about working with Kobe is that, you know, we're working with so many really smart people that are asking important questions and looking at uh, data in in interesting ways, um, but also having the perspective of, of a practitioner is that we have to make these decisions every single day based on incomplete and limited data, um, and we have to do the best that we can with them. So working with Kobe, uh, has it, there's been some challenging moments where I really wonder uh, about some of the structures that researchers are kind of tied to you know it's not their fault um, but there's these systems that support researchers doing research on very narrow topics and not always making sure that that connects to the practice and so I want to be that kind of uh, squeaky wheel that reminds our group that we've got a lot of people that are dying from addiction We've got a lot of families that are really, really struggling with this. And while the research isn't perfect, the research isn't, you know, there's a lot more to learn, uh, we've got to get what we know out into our community quickly in a way that's scalable. And um, so we can save some lives with what we already know. Um, and I don't know that, that the research world and the academic world is always set up to do that. So that's, that's a really interesting and, and fun challenge. I want to be close to all this wonderful research that's going on, but never lose sight of the fact that right now, uh, right now there's 200 men at the healing place that are struggling with addiction. And some of them won't uh, get through the healing place. They won't get onto a path of recovery because our frontline workers there are not armed with all the knowledge that we have. How did you end up at VCU from Caritas? I met this woman named Kitty Harris, who is who started the collegiate recovery program at Texas Tech, and has been kind of a giant in the in the field of young people's recovery. And I, I met her not because I was there to meet somebody you know, to meet folks. I was just there on a retreat and just this woman was so incredibly kind to me. Um, I was struggling with some things at the time and she was so incredibly kind to me and good to me. And, uh, and she started talking to me about collegiate recovery, which I had actually experienced the benefits from my time, my undergraduate at, at UVA. And so she, when I got home, she sent me three books, uh, in, including uh, kind of a a starter guide to starting a collegiate recovery program. And it kind of got me fired up. I was working with uh, Linda Hancock was a volunteer down at the healing place at the time. And there was another substance use counselor in town, Barbara Burke, who was already starting to drink the Kool-Aid about collegiate recovery. And the three of us got together and then Kristen Donovan from the well joined. And we kind of started the effort that became Rams and recovery and started gathering some students and getting a little grant support and started kind of growing an informal recovery network. Um, and so as that started growing, it became clear that it needed staff. 
And so we, um, Linda was was very creative in in working with uh, Danielle Dick uh, from Kobe uh, to try to create a position that both I could work with students in recovery and then also uh, be a part of the research and the uh, efforts of kind of connecting to the community that were going on at, at Kobe. So it's been a really fun journey for me. In the Wellness Resource Center, there's a space now that is a, it's a recovery space. Kind of tell me about that. Yeah, so it was really exciting. So we, um, you know, what we've heard from other collegiate recovery programs, and now there's there's more than 130 throughout the, the country. Um, what we've heard is that when you get a space, it really uh, can change the dynamic of your community. And, you know, there's a space to gather, to be supported. Um the university environment's a recovery hostile environment. And so if you can support students uh, kind of in their recovery, they do amazingly well. And so we are really trying to build that kind of robust uh, recovery supports at VCU. And um, our, our uh, recovery clubhouse is a big part of that. What are the similarities and differences between working with Rams and Recovery and working at the Healing Place? I really see it as as very very similar in in some some key ways and different in in a couple of ways certainly structurally where we don't have you know our own large facility where people are sleeping at night there's certainly a difference um, so there's certainly less control over uh, the clients and uh, that sort of thing but. It's very similar in that we take this addiction recovery management model to say this is a chronic illness that people tend to have to deal with for the rest of their lives. And so taking a really long-term look at how are you going to manage this chronic condition, um, similar to how you would manage diabetes. And so we're not saying there's, you know, there's no time limit on services. So the Healing Place model, um, our alumni were always welcome back for everything from teaching classes to sitting in on the community process to even if they got into a housing challenge later down, they could even move back into some of our off-campus apartments at the Healing Place. So we took this really long-term view of addiction and to say, you know, this is something that you manage for the rest of your life and let's get really serious about that. Let's follow up with people consistently. Let's not put a limit on the length of, of services that they can engage in. And so that's that's what's awesome about Rams and Recovery is that, you know, we've got students that have been sober a, a, a week and we've got students that have been sober for five, six, seven, eight years um, or longer. And, you know, our job is to support them in what they need and to create a community for them to thrive in. So, and, and also with that, you get these wonderful opportunities for service. Uh, students in recovery, people in recovery in general, are really committed to service. And we saw this at the Healing Place where we have these guys coming back all the time, alumni five, ten years after they'd finished, still coming back and being of service to the people behind them, we get the same stuff with Rams and Recovery. Um, if there's a new person at the meeting, they welcome and they greet them. 
they, you know, some of our students go down to the jail um, or the prison and, you know, meet with prisoners and give them hope uh, that, that things can be different. And, you know, it's just, it's just awesome to kind of watch and be a part of because uh, I think people, I'm a little biased, but I really, I love people in recovery because they just have had this opportunity to live a really challenged life and then kind of can see their new life from a different perspective. So you've been very open about your recovery journey and your work as a counselor. Um, When and how did you choose to disclose that to your professional colleagues and what has that process been like? Yeah, so that's been an interesting, interesting process for me. Um, One, you know, frankly, you know, if somebody doesn't know that I'm in recovery, we're just not that close um, because it's such a huge part of my identity as, as, as a person, as a, as a human being. And, but I also see as a part of my role with Rams in recovery, that I am a public face of recovery, that, that that's part of my job, that there's somebody in, in the community, uh, in, in the student's community, that's an adult sometimes, um, that says, I'm a person in long-term recovery and what that means for me is, and to value that identity and to say, you know, the, the resilience associated with that, um, the, the gifts that I've received, uh, being a person in recovery, um, you know, that I can kind of be a public face for people to, uh, identify with or not, um, but I just see that as part of my role. And so I've get, had to get uh, pretty comfortable with, with talking about something that's, it is pretty personal. Um, at the same time, uh, one of the, the first things I did when I became uh, faculty at VCU was I did the safe zone training, which is this wonderful uh, training that the, the LGBTQIA uh, group puts on. And one of the first exercises they did was have a conversation with your neighbor, but first write down the five most important things in your life. And you're not allowed to talk about those things. And I thought that was such a powerful uh, way to understand identity. And a big part of my identity is that I am in recovery. And so Um, and a big part of our students' identity is that they're in recovery. And if they don't have places where they can talk about that, where that's publicly acknowledged, uh, that's, that makes it really hard to get help. That makes it really hard, uh, to just live day to day. Um, so I just see that as a part of, a part of my role and some people are a little weird about it. And certainly I get, you know, I've gotten some looks before and probably had some consequence from it, um, but I just think it's it's an important thing that I can do. So working within the recovery community, I certainly understand your openness as you know, standing as a an example for your students. And I'm curious if you feel that there's more of a stigma or if you've had more difficulty working in the scientific and research communities with that as opposed to working with others in recovery. You know, um, I, I guess I haven't been working in this area long enough to know better. Um, I, I'm sure that there is some impact there, um, where 
you know, this is, it, that's not what scientists do. And, um, and that's okay. I'm, I'm okay not being a scientist, um, you know, um, but I also, I'm struck sometimes by how disconnected some of the research can be from the ground. And uh, certainly when I was working really more directly in the field, I just didn't have access or didn't know how to access the information that I really needed to make different decisions for uh, my clients that were more evidence-informed, that would increase their recovery rates. And I just... I, it wasn't easy for me to access it. I, I consider myself, you know, pretty resourceful and interested in, in what's going on, what's the latest trends. And it was very hard for me to access those things. Um, so I really want to be, again, I, I said this before, I want to be a squeaky wheel in the, in the uh, ears of researchers to say people are dying, you know, and, and we've got to do better getting what we do know into the hands of people. In an effort to bring together your work with researchers and your work with people in recovery, um, one of the main projects that you're working on right now is this From Research to Rehab Town Hall meeting. Tell me about kind of the, the general idea with that and how that is kind of a marriage of all of that, all of those goals. So my hypothesis was that both family members and professionals are hungry for new information, for information about addiction, about substance use. And so with that hypothesis, I said, if we can put together a great group of both professionals, researchers, um, some different perspectives on this issue, uh, that there will be a huge demand for uh, those, um, that conversation to happen. And, and I also did it to, to show researchers that, hey, there is an audience that wants this information, and we've got to figure out how to get it to them in better ways. Um, and so that there's this kind of cross-responsibility, there's this, uh, that families need to be better educated on the resources that are needed. Students need to be better educated on what their substance use means for them and for their families. And researchers need to be more connected with what the heck is going on in the community. And professionals need to need to really read that research. <laughs> and so we all have to do better. And so I hope that, that this is a, a little step in the right direction towards you know, creating these conversations in a, um, you know, in a, in a way that reaches people. As you're planning this town hall event, uh, what are you most excited for? So there's, there's two speakers that I'm excited for in particular are, are two kind of out of town speakers, um, that are both kind of heroes of mine. And, uh, so Dr. Kevin McCauley, has really done a great job of doing kind of what we're talking about here, which is make some of the, the research around uh, addiction and recovery accessible to a whole lot of people seeking recovery. And so he's, he's really wonderful and uh, has, a, has a fascinating story. He was a Navy flight surgeon who uh, became addicted to opiates and, and now is in long-term recovery and 
brings that perspective, but also uh, is very dedicated to the science uh, of this and kind of bringing that to people in an accessible way. And the other person I'm really excited about is Justin Luke Riley, who is the CEO of Young People in Recovery. And he's actually speaking today on a panel with President Obama um, about prescription drug abuse. And uh, so it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's cool. Some of the folks that we've got coming and he's just, he's a young, young person in recovery. And I think that our students will be really fired up about that. And, and he will really inspire us to, to do better with this. Well, I'm, I'm really excited for it. Uh, all of the guests that we've had on the podcast so far are going to be speakers at the uh, town hall meeting. And I appreciate your work in doing that. And I appreciate you coming in and speaking with us today. Yeah, man. Thanks again to Tom Bannard for joining us. To learn more about the From Research to Rehab Town Hall meeting, visit kobe.vcu.edu slash symposium. Our final segment, Mindful Music, encourages listeners to take a break, be present, and appreciate performances by VCU students and graduates. Today's Mindful Music is Silver Understanding by Night Idea. We hope you enjoy and stay tuned for weekly episodes every Friday afternoon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.